Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and I am honored to welcome Washington Post reporters Robert Samuels and Toulouse Olurunipa to the show today. They've co-authored the book, His Name is George Floyd, about George Floyd's roots, life, and lasting cultural impact. Their investigation follows Floyd's story from the housing projects of Houston to his murder in the streets of Minneapolis, and it draws on hundreds of interviews with people who knew George Floyd and people who can lend insight to his story. I was admittedly apprehensive about picking up this book, but after reading it, I really fell in love with it and wanted the authors to get a chance to share with you their why for writing this story. Remember, our December book club selection is the novel True Biz by Sarah Novich, which we will discuss on Wednesday, December 28th with Greta Johnson. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on today's episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. If you love this podcast and want more of it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join The Stacks Pack. The Stacks is a completely independent podcast, which means I do rely on listeners like you to make the show possible week in and week out. So if you like what you hear on this episode or any other episodes, please consider giving your support to this podcast. In addition, you also get perks like our monthly virtual book club, our Discord channel, our bonus episodes. And right now, if you join the Stacks Pack until the end of January 2023, you get access to our completely customizable and detailed reading tracker. It's private, so you don't have to worry about other people judging your star ratings. And it is one of my most proud creations besides this podcast is the reading tracker. So if that interests you, head to patreon.com slash the Stacks and join the Stacks Pack. All right, now it's time for my conversation with Robert Samuels and Toulouse Olurunipa. All right, everybody. I am so excited today. You know, sometimes when I do books on the show, I have an idea about a book. I book the guest before I've ever read the book, and then I have them on. And sometimes I read a book that is so good and makes me so excited about reading that I demand that the author or authors comes on the podcast. That's what happened with this one. I love this book so much. I thought it was so fantastic that I immediately started hounding these gentlemen on social media being like, please come on my podcast. I have to talk to you about this book. So I am thrilled to have Robert Samuels and Tolu Olurunipa on the podcast to talk about their fantastic National Book Award finalist. His name is George Floyd. Welcome to the Stacks, you guys. Thanks so much for Thank having us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, we're really thrilled to be here. I'm thrilled to have you. I have 
a lot of questions about the book. People at home, we will not be spoiling the book, but if you're familiar with George Floyd at all, which I assume that you are because you're listening to this podcast, you know everything. You think you know everything that happens. Lucky for you, there's a book that you can read that will tell you a lot more. But in about 30 seconds or so, will one of you do the honors of just telling folks about this book? Yeah, I can jump in. This is Tolu. This is the story of George Floyd's life. It's a story of his family. It's a story of America. It's a story of our country's history, the way systemic racism has operated in the past and the way it operates in the 21st century, told through the life of George Floyd, who experienced a lot of systemic racism even before he was killed by a white police officer in Minneapolis. So we spend time in his neighborhood, which was segregated, in his schools, which were segregated, in the criminal justice system that was also uh, unjust and, and full of injustices. And we delve into how uh, American systemic racism works. Uh, and we saw that in George Floyd's life and in his family. And we spent a lot of time uh, really delving into exactly how that works and how it worked in George Floyd's experience. Yeah, I think for me, what I loved the most about this book, and I, I think I referred, I've referred to it this a few times as this, is I feel like you gave George Floyd the presidential treatment. Uh, the way that biographies about presidents incorporate so much of their life, their family, their history. You all go all the way as far back as the people who owned George Floyd's ancestors. You found their ancestors and their storyline, which is just not the type of care that we usually see given to everyday Black Americans, which until his murder, that is exactly who George Floyd was. He was an everyday Black American, nobody special in the sense that he was famous or known or had any notoriety or notoriety prior to his death. So I really appreciated that. I think for me, you know, I've talked about this and I mentioned this. I think you both are familiar with this part of my story coming to your book, which was that I was really apprehensive about reading your book. I felt like I don't want to read a book about George Floyd right now. It feels too soon. It feels like this is just going to be a grab for clout in the same way that we saw all these like anti-racist books pop up after his murder. And it wasn't until I saw that you were on the National Book Award shortlist. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to try to read through all these books. I'm going to pick this one up. I'm curious. Let's see. And then I picked it up and I loved it. So the question there is, why tell this story now? Like, why was it important to tell it so soon after its, its occurrence for you? Well, because if we didn't tell it now, we were afraid there would not be another chance to tell it. Like when we started the reporting of this, this was a few months after George Floyd had died. And we had already seen sort of the flattening of his actual story. Mm. And for so many reasons, you know, both Tolu and I, we both have experiences in local journalism and we both have done profiles of people who are running for president. And so often, my philosophy has always been that when you report on someone who's running for president, you treat them like a real person, like that's the actual secret sauce. And that George Floyd was no less American than any other person who we talked about in 2020. What we saw was this big risk that if we did not talk about him now, we might have risked a society in which we never spoke about his hopes and dreams. We never saw his spirit. We never saw his soul. And this was not a type of story that neither Tolu and I took with 
sort of a glib idea. This was not the sort of thing we would do for cloud. But what we saw honestly was this opportunity not just to tell the story of this man in a way that we hadn't heard him spoken about before, uh, but also the chance to show that if we look at this person, just an everyday Black man who you would presume has nothing going on, who I say if my parents had seen him on the corner, they would say, don't be like that person. Huh. Ignore that that type of person exists. If you look at them, you might be able to unfold something that's more humane about them, but also show some of the fractures and unfairness in the country. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that really struck me about the way that you kind of like told his story was that obviously I, I knew he was going to die. I knew how and when. I like I, I knew the day. I knew it was coming. And when it came and after you kind of close up that section on his death, I was genuinely sad. I missed him. I was like, I can't believe I still have to continue reading this book without without Perry Floyd. First, th thank you for saying that. We wanted to humanize George Floyd. A lot of people who met George Floyd across the world, met him through the last moments of his life, which happened to be the worst moments of his life, those, those nine minutes and 29 seconds where he was gasping for air. And we started off as journalists trying to get the backstory, trying to find out what George Floyd's life was like, what he was like when he was just living a normal day before, you know, before he died. And we started off with a series and we got a little bit of information about you know, the people who loved him, the people he loved, the kind of life that he lived. And we realized from from that series that ran into, in the Washington Post in 2020 that there was so much more to the story. And he was a full human being. He had his ups and downs. He had people who, who cared about him. He was well known in his local community. He was a person of stature in, in Houston's Third Ward and in Minneapolis. He had struggles and dreams and things that he overcame and things that he was still trying to overcome. And as journalists, we're interested in telling a human story, which happened to be a uniquely American story, which could tell us bigger things about our country. But at the same time, you know, George Floyd was a human being. And a lot of times people like George Floyd, as Robert was saying, get ignored, um, not only by other people walking by, but also by the American media. And say, they say people like that, you know, we don't really need to know their story. We don't need to know their struggles. They're segregated and siphoned off and, you know, a, poor public housing community. And, you know, we could live our lives without ever crossing paths with someone like that. And we wanted to, to hit the pause button and say, everyone got excited and interested in George Floyd's fate when he died on camera in this heinous way. But, you know, for decades, he was slowly dying in the American institutions that didn't give him a fair shot. And we wanted to examine how he strived within those systems, how he tried to, to make a life for himself, all the ways he was knocked down, the times he got back up, the times that he found himself in a place that he said was a dark place and he tried to find the light out of it. And so we thought it was important to, to tell his story, to tell, to tell his family's story, and to showcase for people who were able to connect with him because of how they saw him on the video, that there was a lot that we could connect with that happened before that. And it was worth exploring, like you said, with the presidential treatment, what his life was like and what we could learn about ourselves as, a, as, a, as Americans, as a country, about the kind of systems that we create and uphold and allow to exist um, beyond just policing and beyond just, one, you know, the quote unquote, one bad apple who kills someone, but all of the institutions that 
interfere with someone's life and with their hopes and dreams. And so we thought it was important to tell that story in the, the fullest way that we could um, and allow people to see George Floyd for who he was. He wasn't just the person screaming uh, on his last moments, screaming for his life. He was someone who, who was trying to, to live a, a full life for decades and had dreams that, you know, we point back to his second grade teacher who, you know, told us about what he was like in second grade and how he wanted to be a Supreme Court justice. Now he was reading and writing on grade level, even though he came from a poor community and how he was trying and how his mother told him to speak the King's English and gave him all of these lessons and all of these things and all of these tools to try to survive as a black man in America, where she said, you know, you have two strikes already against you. You, you can't have a third strike. Uh, and so we, we wanted to showcase that because there are a lot of people who don't know that American experience. And we thought it was important for everyone to get a chance to, to connect with George Floyd as he lived, um, as well as connecting with the person who died on May 25th, 2020, and the aftermath of his death and all that that sparked in our country and around the world. Another part about this is that Al-Zuber liked him. And I know that's a strange thing to say, but when we started thinking about this project, I mean, my biggest fear was that we were going to sort of produce something like, you know, precious based on it, you know, where just right. bad things continually happen to a person. And no one, at least I didn't want to traffic in that world. But the thing about his name is George Floyd was that we got to learn about George Floyd himself. Mm -hmm. And he was one of those people. I mean, even though you're talking to folks who are clearly going through a lot of pain, when you'd say, tell me a story about Floyd, you could just sort of see that wistful, gleeful nostalgia, you know, that you have with yeah. your, your friend and you maybe got into some trouble. And that was so affirming at least for me, who was nervous and like any other American human being, maybe not all Americans, but specifically as a Black man, saw the way he died with a lot of trepidation and a lot of fear. Okay, I'm going to ask you guys a little bit about about your working together. How did you all get paired up for this? Because I'm assuming that at the Washington Post, you you would have been assigned to to do this story. So was it just totally random? Have you all worked together in the past? Yeah. So Robert and I have known each other for about 15 years. Um, we started off working in local news, as we said, at the Miami Herald. Um, oh, wow. And we connected, you know, just randomly back then. And, you know, about a decade passed between our careers kind of taking different paths. Then we got back together at the Washington Post. Uh, and at the beginning of 2020, we were both covering essentially the presidential campaign from different angles. I was a White House reporter, so I was covering Trump and all the craziness surrounding him and COVID. And, yeah, it was just a lot. <laughs> um, Robert was doing, you know, these really in-depth sweeping feature pieces about Americans across the country and how they were approaching the pandemic and the presidential politics and all of the things happening in, in the country. And then May 25th, 2020 happened, and we saw the country and the world respond in this kind of major significant way. And we were essentially assigned, we were brought together as part of a team of reporters that were taken from everything that they were doing and assigned this project. And essentially we, we were going to find out about George Floyd, the person, but also about George Floyd's America. And the idea was to tell us, tell readers, tell the public a little bit about systemic racism through 
looking at various institutions that George Floyd intersected with. This included mm. the housing system, the educational system, the criminal justice system, obviously the police in America, healthcare. Um, and so we took different pieces of that project that ended up being a six-part series that ran in the Post. Uh, and that project won a George Polk Award and people really responded uh, in a way that we weren't even expecting in terms of like feeling like they got to know a little bit about George Floyd. And so Robert and I, who were two of the lead reporters on that, um, you know, knew that there was so much more to the story. And we knew that there was something valuable in putting together a project that people could look at and point to and say, this is a piece of American history. George Floyd was not a president. He was not a politician, but he was someone who had a major impact on American history and his life was worth exploring, even if he hadn't been someone whose death sparked all of these protests. His American experience was was unique. It was worthy of, in, of investigation. It was worthy of you know, empathy. It was worthy of spending time looking at what his life was like. And so, you know, Robert and I have done that kind of reporting, especially, you know, comparing you know, and analyzing how policies impact people, how politics impact, you know, a person's life. And so we wanted to take that lens to this project while also taking a biographical lens to, to George Floyd and, and telling his story in a way that would shield, shed light on, you know, who he was as a human being. And because he became this historical figure, it was worth knowing what his life was like. And that's what, that's what we ended up doing together. How did you all stay organized and divide the labor? Cause it's like 400 plus interviews, right? Prayer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, you know, Back when we did the proposal, we outlined essentially the entire book and we didn't have much time to deviate from that outline. Uh, and we, you know, we start, we started at the beginning with almost a paragraph by paragraph of what we're precisely going to do. And then, you know, Tolu, he had taken, he, he had taken up a lot of the reporting in Houston. Uh, I was in Minneapolis. I was taking up a lot of reporting there. And uh, so that led to some natural divisions. Um, but we had we had a very specific like writing game plan. It got more specific with time. If you went into my room or my hotel at that point, it would be covered in like yellow notepads and whiteboards <laughs> and all kinds of stuff to make sure that we were being able to not just sort of do it in a way that was artful, but as journalists, we were really concerned about not being able to turn it in on time. And so that was kind of like our mental checklist to be able to make sure we did that. Is it hard to write about a person you've never met or spoken to? Yes. <laughs> uh, in a way, in a way it is uh, because, you know, the, the best information about one per a person's life potentially comes from that person themselves. And George Floyd was not alive. Now he did leave behind some writings. He left behind some lyrics. He left behind some social media posts. So we were able to hear his voice a little bit. But um, we had to ask people who were close to him, people who lived with him, people who knew him, people who loved him, people who did time with him, in some cases, people who were allegedly victimized by him to tell us about him. And we cast a wide net. We left no stone unturned and we tried to talk to every person we could who had inter interfaced or intersected with George Floyd and 
allow them to tell us what he was like. And like Robert said earlier, a lot of those people were willing to share what he was like because he was such an impactful person, because he was the kind of person that left these indelible memories in, in your head. And, and people would literally pantomime uh, in, in George Floyd's voice and, and, and with his mannerisms to recreate conversations they had with him because they were so memorable, because he was so different. You know, the first words of the book are, I love you, because George Floyd was a 6'6", 250-pound guy who'd go around telling people, I love you, which, you know, struck people in, in, in the Third Ward and uh, other kind of hard scrabble communities where he grew up as odd, because you didn't often hear that from, you know, big black men. Uh, but he was different, and he left those memories with people, and those memories became the... The, the fuel that we use for this book, because there was so much um, in terms of anecdotes and stories and memories that people had. And that that helped us to cover for the fact that, you know, George Floyd was, was no longer with us. Um, there are obviously biographies that are done by, about people who have long left the scene, you know, historical figures. I, I think it helped uh, to an extent that George Floyd uh, was someone who people had fresh memories of, as well as the fact that we were writing about not only his life, but what was sparked by his life. And that allowed us to take our journalistic lens and be a part of the aftermath of his death, be a part of the protest and the trial and the, you know, the action that took place after his death and be there as witnesses for those actions. And we were able to bring those scenes to life as well um, through our own, you know, first person views. And so we, we were able to pair, you know, the memories that people had with the stories that we witnessed personally and I think that helped us to to make sure that the story was accurate and the story was vivid and that it shined in a way that allowed people to feel like they were there. I was just going to add that it's interesting and I'm afraid I might be giving away the company's secret here. <laughs> but I think there's a misconception that if you're in a small community, it's hard to learn about a person. But the truth is in... George Floyd, he trafficked in communities where everyone knew each other, where they knew their mama, where they knew their cousin, you know. And because of that, all of them had, you know, they bought into a lot of collective memories about things. And one of the most stunning things that we found in the book is that we would talk to people who did not know each other or did not know we had talk to someone else who was in that room. And so often, remember I said, Tolu was hundreds of miles away from me. And we'd both hear these stories and the accuracy almost huh. to the word wow. was really, I mean, it was really stunning. And also just the fact that because it was a community of characters, everyone had a nickname, every, right. people, I mean, they when they talk about George Floyd, they'd all sort of do the same sort of things with their face. They'd sort of squint. They'd start repeating themselves. They'd do the same kind of voice. And even though we were both experiencing the story of George Floyd in two different locations, the synchronicity that we saw was really jaw-dropping. I love that. That's really, really cool. Okay, fact-checking. What's the process like for the Washington Post versus writing at a trade publisher? Because I know that the standard is very different. So how did you all navigate that? Were you still using like journalistic 
fact checking when you did trade publishing or like, how does that work? Yeah, I think everyone was very concerned about producing something that was not accurate, uh, both on the post side and the publisher side. I mean, for us, uh, the standard at the Washington Post, which is how we're sort of what's in our blood, is that (laughs) you have to have one person with direct knowledge of the situation. That is, they're either involved or they were in the room. And that has to be corroborated with someone with independent knowledge of it. And, uh, you know, where one of the hardships, like you said, is that one of the people with direct information of it is not here with us. You know, we right. didn't get the chance to interview, interview George Floyd. So that was sort of our natural standard in terms of sourcing. But, you know, we also had a fact checker who used to be the Post's fact checker. Oh, wow. And uh, the folks at uh, the folks at Viking, our editor, Ibrahim Ahmad, who was phenomenal, did something that my editor at The Post would never do, which is he looked over every transcript that we had submitted. Wow. And he, you know, he found things that were within those texts and transcripts that, you know, at least I didn't deem as important, but he saw it and he really wanted them added. So that was to his credit. And then Viking also fact-checked it too. Um so, I mean, at the end, we probably got I, probably six or seven different wow. independent fact checks on it. And, you know, um, there are still some things I had to correct. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, like much, I mean, much less. But yeah, we it was very important to us that the book held up to not just the trade pub standard, but to the highest echelon of journalistic standard. I love. OK, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. Texas. 
It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, we're back. This question that I'm going to ask you is, mm, I think it's, I think it's fair. So we'll see. I posted, I'll, I'll frame it like this. I posted a review of y'all's book, which I loved, as I've mentioned many times, and I got multiple comments from people that had mis and disinformation slurs about George Floyd, name calling. They were repeating lies that Kanye West had recently mentioned about a drug overdose situation. A lot of bullshit. Okay. Like patented false information. So my question to you all is what kind of pushback have you received from writing this book? Because if I got it from posting three paragraphs on Instagram, I can only imagine that you guys got something too. Because uh, (laughs) again, it's three paragraphs on Instagram about books. You all wrote the book on George Floyd. So what kind of pushback did you receive? And then to that point, has any pushback that you've received been actually valid to you? Have you felt like you've heard pushback where you were like, yeah, we missed that or we should have done that or I can't I, I'm sad we didn't think of that or or maybe there is space here for for more thinking. So that's a that's a important question and I'll try to I'll try to tackle it because it it take it could take us to some some dark places with um oh, some I love of the, a dark place. The, <laughs> <laughs> we we did get well I'll start off by saying that the the response to the book has been overwhelmingly positive. We've we've had a lot of really great people willing to engage and people saying this book, you know, opened my eyes, this book, this book made me cry, this book made me see George Floyd in a way that I, I hadn't before. Um, but you know, in the, in the middle of that, there were also, you know, a lot of people who didn't want to engage with the idea of the book. And, you know, some of them reached out to us directly and some of them were nasty. And, you know, there were some white supremacists that went on our Goodre- Goodreads page and just gave us one-star reviews as a, as a campaign um, to, to tank our rating very early in the process. Um, and, you know, some some negative uh, racist websites that went up and, and whatnot about, about us and about the book and, you know, I, w- I would say that was the minority of, of, of responses, um, but there there was that that general pushback, and we do hear from people online on Twitter, you know, saying, "Oh, did you talk to the person who George Floyd victimized during a armed robbery?" And you know, sometimes we we have to respond that yes, that person was one of the hundreds of people interviewed for this book, uh, and we in, involve. We include her side of the story as well as George Floyd's side of the story, and and, and what it was a a more complicated event than most people would 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 imagine, just from seeing you know one online headline saying oh George Floyd held up a pregnant woman. Uh, we went into that 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 story, and we won't do any spoilers in this book, but I hope I hope people will read it with an open mind because we interviewed multiple people involved, including you know the woman who was in the house, other people who are in the car. Um, you know, getting police records, getting records from people George Floyd talked to, his 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 girlfriend at the time, and it was important for us to 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 deal with those issues. We 
have said very clearly that we are journalists. We're not, you know, activists. We're not trying to, you know, shy away from anything that might be unflattering. Uh, and we wanted to make sure we told the whole story. And so the most pushback we've gotten have been from, you know, first the blatant racists who just don't want to engage with the book at all, but also with people who say, you know, I heard this thing about George Floyd. I heard this negative rumor. And for that reason, he shouldn't be a martyr. He shouldn't be made out to be a saint. And we never we never decided to write this book because George Floyd was a perfect person. Nobody's perfect. We wrote this book because he was a person. He was a human being and he was worthy of having his life seen as a human life. Obviously, Derek Chauvin was someone who didn't see him that way. And people responded as a result of the fact that his life was not treated with humanity. And so we wanted to treat his entire life with humanity, not just those final seconds where he was deprived of his humanity. And so that involved us, you know, talking to a lot of people. And so one of the things that we've been able to do is just stand by the work and say, you know, we put a lot of work into this and could have could could we have done some things better? I, I, I would be the first to say that, yes, there are things that we could have done better. There's some um, some areas where we would have loved to get more more detail. I don't think any of the criticism that we've received has for the for the most part has been has made us think that you know, this project wasn't worthwhile or that this, was, this wasn't, you know, the right way to do it or nothing on a broader scale in terms of our, our general approach. Uh, if anything, you know, some some s- small changes here or there, some some areas where there are people who we would have loved to talk to, some, some, some storylines we would have loved to, you know, delve further into, um, maybe some areas where we would have made some word changes or some changes into the, the, the theme of, of how we approach certain things. But for the most part, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll point to like a lot of the positive responses that we received as gratifying. And, you know, as first time authors, it was, you know, a, a tough role for us. And so it's, it's been really helpful to see people engaging with the book the way which the way in which we intended it, because, uh, you know, issues of race, issues of um, you know, some of the systemic things that we, we approach in the book are very easy to be misinterpreted. So it was, mm-hmm. it was gratifying to us that people engaged with it. They, they, they read the book the way we intended it. And for the most part, for the people who actually read the book, you know, the response has been positive. Now for people who didn't read the book or just who came in with their preconceived no- notions, that's where we've had, a, you know, a few negative, you know, comments and, and whatnot. And, and we give a lot less credence to people who never even wanted to engage with the book and, and, and right. decided that they just, you know, were going to go with a stereotype or with a rumor as opposed to the real facts of what we, what we were able to find out. And Tolu, it's so interesting because, I mean, I'm a little bit more likely to engage with folks on Twitter who will say, he's not a, why are you trying to make him a saint? He's not a martyr. Uh, Then Tolu, because that's sort of a part of my job. You know, it's the ethos (laughs) of me that I've spent far more time in my career as a national reporter going to places where there's no one who looks like me, then there, I spend time in places where there is someone who looks like me. Mm. And a number of the folks that I've engaged with, and you can, you can check the replies if you want to see the receipts, but a number of them, after I've said, oh, you know, we did talk to these people and we do talk about uh, his drug dependency and why, you know, Ye's thinking was off and we've you know we've converted not a lot but a you know reasonable number of people who'd say i'm sorry 
well, if you did this, I'll pick this up. I had a conversation with a woman at the Apple store, you know, when she asked why I was getting new earbuds. Um, the other thing that, you know, I, I do want to make sure that we do talk about is that, you know, some people have uh, said, why him? You know, why George Floyd? Why not Breonna Taylor? Or why not someone else? And I don't really take that as criticism. No. You know, I take that as sort of like, there's a big world and a really meaningful set of stories that need to be told. This is one particular story in a canon. And sort of like, kind of like the criticism of omission has been, I think, the one that people expect the people who want us to take them seriously, that's the thing that they talk about most. Well, you know, sort of like, why didn't you talk about this? Mm. And, un, you know, I honestly don't really know what to do with that. Uh, <laughs> like every, every other author, we did the best we could. <laughs> and, you know, that's what we try. Well, just so you know, the people who came into my mention saying crazy things, I told them that they were fucking Joe. So I just want you to know, because I didn't write the book and I don't work for the Washington Post. I was like, oh, I think I told one person. And even even after all of that, he was still a better person than you'll ever be. And then I got called and then I got called the N word. So that was awesome. Oh, my gosh. I mean, you know. Just char- I'm, like I'm, I'm, such charming people on the internet. It's inc- it's like lovely, lovely to be around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's you know, it's um one of one of those casualties of the job in terms of you you deal with the worst of people. But yeah, like totally, you know, I often I often say, I, you know, I, we spend. 90% and this is extra topical but like you know we spend a good amount of time in my daily job dealing with folks who don't have the same opinions that I do right. um and the thing that I try to remember and that I try to show when we're writing about them is that they're all human beings you know like they're motivated by you know what is I think a noble purpose which is to preserve a world for their themselves and their children. There's a difference in how you see that. Um, and that is a part of the approach that we took to this. I mean, it, you know, I think it would be very easy for us to have gone on the either side and sort of, sort of like continued the line of coverage that we saw happening to George Floyd and sort of saying, you know, Black lives matter, but his story doesn't really matter, which is mm. kind of like the larger global way of thinking about it. Um, but we knew not to do that. And I think a lot of that is informed by a sort of philosophy that we've gained through reporting in other places that, you know, like when you actually go and you try to seek the nuance of a person, not looking at them as a tragic comic or something else, um, you find something that's resonant and deep and meaningful. Right. Who was your audience? Who were you thinking you were writing to? Or who were you writing to firstly, I guess? Because I think for some people, it's like the audience is like as big as possible, but like there is an intention on like who you're writing toward. I don't know. I, I may have to defer to Robert because I, I feel like as <laughs> as journalists, we never we just kind of put our work out there and hope for the best. Um, yeah. But I, you I, must think about oh, an yeah. audience. Like a, you don't yeah. write you don't write it's for weird, the dude. New York Post. Like you know who your audience is at the Washington Post. Like it's a different audience than the Wall Street Journal or the yeah. New York Times. So there is like some audience think, even there. 
Yeah, I think there's a little bit of daylight between me and Tolu on this question. Okay, okay. Um, but because, you know, I take sort of Toni Morrison's belief about getting the white editor off your shoulder mm. as very important. And um, honestly, uh, you know, you're talking about immigrant parents, but there were three, pe- there were three people who I kept in mind. Um, and the first one is my mom, uh, who... I didn't realize this, but moved to the United States in the same year George Floyd was born. Mm. And when I had, when she had heard us talk about that in an interview, it kind of took her aback. And, you know, she said, God, you know, it just made me think of what I would have thought my American experience would be if I had known everything else about America. And I just thought that was, you know, when she had said that, I, I, you know, it again kind of like reaffirmed the idea of writing to a reader who is informed, you know, they don't, it's not that they don't know anything, but you wouldn't want to condescend to them. You'd want to treat your reader as a respectful person who's somewhat engaged in the country. The second person I thought of was uh, my friends' kids. But, you know, like so many of them, I'm trying not to cry, but um, <sighs> so many, so many of them were just, you know, starting life when this happened. And I, um, I just thought about sort of the contribution that Tolu and I could have for them when they're of age to be able to, like, understand this moment at that precious time in their life, you know. And the third thing that I thought about was actually myself because I, I remember being in a bookstore and picking up the bio, the autobiography of Stokely Carmichael mm. and he Stokely Carmichael and I, we had gone to the same high school and he has a chapter about going to our high school. And I remember reading it and feeling like it was the sort of first time that I had really felt seen in a story that like, you know, my experience had been taken seriously, that there was meaning to it. And I just thought about sort of like a young, curious black boy picking up the book with, you know, probably a little trepidation and just finding something that made him say like, yeah, you know, I just thought that would be such a wonderful value and contribution to the world. I love that. My children were born... Um, in December 2019. So thinking about that second group you mentioned, like I I did sense a little bit of that in the reading end. I was like, I can't wait for my kids to be old enough. And for them, you know, like we took them to the big march in LA. There's, I have pictures of them like strapped to myself and my husband walking down the streets with thousands of people and thinking like, I can't wait to tell them that they were part of this moment and like that they... Well, of course, they'll never remember it, but like they were in the streets from before they were even six months old, like just yeah. which is like wild to think about. Is there anything that's not in the book that you wish was? Mm. <laughs> you both I, have a I, smirk, I, so I feel like you have some <laughs> answer that you guys have talked about that like you couldn't get properly checked or something. Like you both have yeah. the same look <laughs> in your face. I think we're both. Waiting to see what the other one yeah, is going to say. Yeah, we've <laughs> that a few times. Uh, <laughs> um, 
for me, I, for me, I my biggest wish. I'll 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 just say it. I my biggest wish is that we had been able to get a confession from someone who was involved in the armed robbery. Mm. Uh, and it's not that we didn't try, but it was more uh, we ran out of time. Mm. Um, and so that to me that was one of the things uh it's not in it's not in there but it's not in there because right. we couldn't get it in a way that would meet the standards of what we wanted to for the rest of the book. Yeah. Um I I agree with that and I would just say we did leave a lot on the cutting room floor um but looking back on it now um I give a lot of credit to both our our editors um, and, and folks who, who read behind us and, and sort of helped us streamline the, the project because uh, most, the vast majority of the choices we made on things to leave out were, um, in, in hindsight, the right choice. So, um, you know, we had more than 400 inter- interviews. There were hundreds of hours of tape of, you know, recorded interviews that we could have found a way to add new anecdotes or new stories about George Floyd, about Derek Chauvin into this book. But we, you know, we wanted to, to stick to the, to the mission. And so in terms of like all the stuff that we, we had ended up not getting into the book, I think it was an almost every choice. It was the right choice. Um, and I think we were able to kind of choose the best stuff and get across the, the mission um, without belaboring certain points or without, you know, dwelling too long on certain things or without being you know, overly lengthy, um, especially given the, the tight timeline we were working on. So um, that I, I, I'll put, I'll leave it that I'll leave it at that. Um, but I think there, I think it's it's a, hopefully a tribute to the reader that we chose the best stuff that we had, as opposed to just choosing everything that we had because we could have done that and the book could have could have been much longer. No. I'm glad you guys made some discerning decisions. Um, yeah. Just I, we haven't talked about Derek Chauvin at all, and we, and we really won't. Um, I don't. I feel like there's not a lot to say about him, to be honest. Though you guys do a really good job, like pro- profiling him as well. Um, but the one thing I do want to say is that it. One of the things that's interesting to me about this, like, I don't know. I don't know how to say it. Like this situation of black person killed by police officer is oftentimes in the media and in the culture, the black people that are killed are sort of like lumped together as the same kind of person, troubled or poor or drug addict or whatever. And reading the detail that you all put in about Derek Chauvin, I was like, wow, all of these cops are actually the exact same person. Like it's (laughs) like, it's just so interesting that we still keep up with this like myth of individualism for white people. And like reading the details of his story, I was like, isn't this the same guy who had the issue with Sandra Bland? Like it, that guy is the same person. Like it's like the backstories. Of, and that was like very interesting to me because, you know, I consume media. And so I often have to like push back against the stereotypes because I know that Derek Chauvin or I know that George Floyd is not the same as 
Tamir Rice, like I know these things, but then it's like put in our brains that they're similar, they're the same just because they're black. And then reading about, yeah, the cop and fucking the Tamir Rice, that's also Derek Chauvin. Like that's the same guy. And that was wild. But that's all I want to say about Ooh. him. <laughs> I mean, can we? Yeah, I, we can go. I, go wouldn't put it, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put it in those terms. But They're not the exact think, same person, but like yeah, the profile yeah. is so similar in a way that we don't talk about. It's sort of what I mean. Like that yeah. there's this like, they've been in trouble. They, they've had some anger issues issues. They're using tech techniques. They know they're not supposed to be using. They've been in trouble in their departments. You know, there's aggressive behavior that is documented, like all of that stuff that was came up with Derek Chauvin. I've heard about these other police police officers, but so often they still get to be individual bad guys or killers or however you want to, vi- or if you come from a different leaning good guys who made a mistake, mm-hmm. but they all get to be their own person in a way that I just now, after reading your book, was like, maybe they're more similar than we're giving. <laughs> well, them I mean, yeah, I think one the philosophy that we had with thinking about Derek Chauvin is the same philosophy philosophy we had with thinking about the life of George Floyd, which is that their actions are informed by a larger system that is rarely examined. In policing, it's incredibly rarely examined. And that when you start to think about it, we wanted to move the conversation away of thinking of, uh, you know, the officer who murdered George Floyd as some sort of maniacal bad apple, but to raise the question that, Maybe there is something that is baked within how we think about policing in this country, how it's how it's done, how folks are trained, what they're told they can get away with, what they do get away with. That is important to note. And that if you're really doing an American story, right, like you have to be able to do that because that sort of confrontational aspect of it was not just confronting George Floyd on that day. Like it was confronting him throughout the course of his life. Yeah. I want to do just a hard shift. I always ask people about this. You can, you each get a chance to respond. Um, How do you write? Where are you? How many hours a day? How often? Um, I guess for you both, is it different when you're working on the book versus when you're writing at the Washington Post? Um, Do you have music? Are there snacks and beverages? Any rituals around candles or (laughs) aloe vera gel? I don't know, whatever. (laughs) Lots of crystals. Lots of crystals. Um, Well, I live in LA, so... That is a popular <laughs> behavior here. For, for sure. Well, this this book required a lot of uh, <laughs> spiritual and divine connection just to meet our deadlines. Um, but I, for me, I write a lot very early in the morning, um, at, you know, three, four o'clock in the morning. I'll write when everything is quiet. I know a lot of writers kind of like that quiet sense before the day gets started before are um, you waking up at three or are you not going asleep until so i <laughs> sometimes it's all a blur but <laughs> uh, i t- i typically in writing this book would wake up early and start early and get in wow. you know a good chunk of hours before like really starting my day and going out on a walk and you know getting showered and everything i would just get up start writing um and a lot of times for me it take it takes me a, a little bit of a while to, to get into the writing mode so that often involves like a lot of procrastination for the first few minutes, sometimes reading over stuff that I had previously written or reading stuff I shouldn't be writing or like going through emails or just like clearing my head and sort of clearing the catch of, of things that would distract me during the writing process. 
getting all of that out of the way and then sitting down and writing. Um, and then, you know, that's in the best case scenario, a lot of times um, in, in, in writing, I'll get writer's block and then the right idea will, will strike <laughs> when I'm like listening to a song or out on a walk. A lot of times when I'm out on a walk, actually, and I'll have to race to get to where I can be to write it down or I'll like, you know, tap it into my phone and say and email myself and say, oh, this is this is how to end this chapter. This is how to write this piece or this is a, a piece of the puzzle that needs to be added in. Um, so a lot of times it'll be just kind of very serendipitous in terms of like not knowing exactly when it's going to hit, but, mm. um, you know, the, 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 the idea will come and I'll have to kind of race to get to, to where I can write and just be there. So sometimes it's listening to your, your body, listening to your mind and allowing, you know, allowing yourself to kind of follow the process. But to the extent that I have control over it, I like to write in very quiet, early early morning, um, peaceful settings where there's not a lot of distraction, not a lot of emails coming in and just facing the, facing the task. Cause it was a monumental and difficult task. And it helped me to have just kind of a clear, clear plate and just being able to, to jump into it and, and, and wrestle the, this, this narrative. And you didn't answer about snacks or beverages. I so I was doing intermittent fasting when I was writing this book. Oh so my gosh! Ugh. I was writing on an empty stomach for for quite a long time, and my treat after a long day of writing would be an overly caloric meal of you know just multiple meals, you know, jumped into one. Um, but that that's sort of how I mean I try to drink a lot of water and, and get liquids in and whatnot, but. Um, I find that when, when I eat a ton during the writer, writing process, I get distracted or I get tired. Um, so I, I'd eat for a long, or I'd write for a long stretch. And then when I'd be done, I would um, have my, my meal for the day. Okay. Robert? I didn't know that about you. I didn't know you were intimate. <laughs> because, you know, I feel like because I felt like when we were having our editing sessions, like I would always be eating something. <laughs> kind of, um, but I mean, I didn't. I don't, I don't really think about it. <laughs> like, I mean, I'm a outliner um, and I will have to like, actually like recite the story to myself. Like I have to go ahead and sort of like speak it orally before I start putting anything on the page because yeah. I get very nervous. And so that's one of, I mean, that's probably the most consistent part of my process. Like for me, it doesn't, really matter if I'm writing in the day or night. I'm terrified either way. But I like uh, toss my cell phone somewhere or I'll ask um, my partner to hide it. Uh, so then I can't get distracted by that. And I, for this, I mean, typically I listen to uh, like cast recordings or like albums that I know super well. Like um, which cast recordings? Oh God! Uh, <laughs> I, I'm trying to think of what I was listening to at this. Uh, Hades. Okay. This is this is actually kind of. I was a theater major, <laughs> but, so I'm like very okay, curious. I, this okay, is like really okay. my kink. <laughs> okay, I'm 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 sorry, but uh, so you know the introduction to the the introduction title is flowers, um, but a part of that is. My favorite song from Hades Town is Flowers. Okay. <laughs> um, and it turns out that uh, Courtney Ross, um, who is one of George Floyd's 
girlfriends who's featured prominently in the book, um, she had a cat named Eurydice. And it was so like I listened wow. to Hades Town a lot. I also also um Aaliyah's albums just dropped on Spotify oh, as yes. we're doing the reporting of it. So I listened to like a lot of Rock the Boat and We Need a Resolution. <laughs> Rock the but Boat. I so was good. Yeah, but I know, right? One of <laughs> underrated classic. But um but largely uh, you know, this experience because you know, because I was writing with Tolu and I wanted to be conscientious that like our voices meld, melded, um, that I largely wrote a lot of the chapters listening to nothing um, because, you know, I didn't want, you know, it to be informed by like Lin-Manuel, Miranda, Lerner and Lowe and Tolu, you know, like it's just like, it's like too much. So like I just went, and, and that was the same thing with reading, you know, like I, I couldn't, I didn't want to read anything either. Like, um, because, you know, we had so many voices uh, of the people and there's some, I mean, there's some like just really interesting, thoughtful characters who were peppered throughout the story that um, I didn't want to muck it up. And so, uh, you know, I did a lot of this in sort of silence. And I had, uh, you know, I have a I have a prayer group, a spiritual support group that I've had for years. And at some point, you know, when things were getting really rough, they asked me if I needed anything. And I said, send snacks. Yeah. And um, I was joking, but one day I got this like huge box of stuff from Trader Joe's. Wow! And I had I had never heard of jerk plantain chips before. Oh, like, we have those a, in like, our house right now. They're so good. Like <laughs> as a Caribbean American, I was like, this is total like gentrifier foolishness, yeah. <laughs> but they're so tasty. Um, and I had I had a lot of those. Oh my god, I love this. Okay, yeah, so this I was one, not intermittent fast fasting. <laughs> I just have a few more questions for you. This one is very important. What is the word you can never spell correctly on the first try? <laughs> I'm thinking I do like the god. DG thing. Like sometimes, like the judge the words like judgment and um, okay, yeah, I, I yeah, I tend to like always mix up those those words. Judgment is hard. Okay. Ma- maintenance. Oh my is, god, an impossible one. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the one that I like. Really have to like slow down and like think about it. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, there was oh, also a, like this thing about the Oxford comma that was <laughs> continued continued to come up. Uh, you know, I, it's like any good Vampire Weekend fan. I don't give a fuck about the Oxford comma. Okay. Our editor really did. Um, and I mean, even today we had to turn in copy and I forgot. And like, that's, you know, more so than spelling. That was probably the biggest like grammatical ghost that hung over me. Oh my God. I love that. <laughs> I'm yeah. a terrible speller and terrible at grammar and writing. So that all sounds horrible. Who's the coolest person who has expressed interest in this book or that you've heard from that liked the book? Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm wondering if I should. I'm wondering if I should. I'm, I'm just gonna say it because I actually felt bad. So we actually, um, in the we actually interviewed a number of celebrities for the copy, um, and I some said yes and some said no. But 
I feel terrible, but Maxwell, the R&B artist, was, you know, he was in a number of drafts and he had, was taken out last minute, but um, he was, he was one of, he was one of the people in the book. Um, I don't know. I don't know the, there have been, I mean, just kind of like journal, like geeky things like Jason Reynolds oh. <laughs> was like super Jason into Reynolds it is and- the most beloved person in the Stax universe. He is. Okay. Super- okay. Jason Reynolds is um, very important here. So okay. Yes, okay. Love, so, love. That 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 was so that was something. Um, he and I have not talked about this book. I'm literally gonna like message him right now and be like, he like he like gave us this? a little he gave us a little shout out on Twitter. I'm not I'm not not Twitter on Instagram. I'm 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 not sure if he read it, but like to know that it was in his universe. <laughs> um, and you know we had to you know we're both political reporters, so we yeah. dropped off the book and got interest of it from a number of you know very high-ranking folks in the U.S. government of today and yesterday. Cool. Um, Yeah. But we we hadn't, I don't don't think, we had heard from some of them, but we haven't heard from a number of them. But a lot of them asked for copies, which was kind of cool. Yeah, and it was was great um, to be able to interview Joe Biden for this book. Um, Like you said, presidential treatment. So we talked to everyone from you know, the corner boy to the president and, you know, the fact that he was interested enough to talk to us because he doesn't do a lot of interviews. And that was um, really gratifying. And obviously there are some other politicians who were, uh, you know, featured in, in the book as well. But just to know that people connected with what we were trying to do, because you know, as journalists, we had to explain what we were trying to do with the book and you know, to have Biden and a number of other top people, governors, senators, mayors, um, connect with it. That was that was really gratifying. Yeah, and uh, you know, President Biden, his interview came in a half hour before the deadline. It was very close. Um, yeah, he's busy. And, you know, he had other. He, he's a little too. busy. You know, he's got but, a job. You know, yeah, first just got asked, off unemployment. He was trying to like, yeah, he was trying to pull troops out of Afghanistan one day when we were supposed to chat. It was it was something, but you know, like wow. you know, we had. I mean, in the larger cosmic sense, uh, you know, we both have interviewed Jesse Jackson a number of times for stories. But I think in this kind of context, it was a really meaningful interview and sort of, you know, he opens up the last chapter, really, in sort of trying to figure out how to frame this curious moment that we've been able to do. Um, And it, you know, to think that, you know, for your first book, you know, like Jesse Jackson had deemed it important and really displayed a vulnerability that you rarely see from him. Uh, it, it was particularly meaningful. Okay, these are my last two questions. Hopefully, we'll be quick. Sorry, I'm like just loving talking to you guys. I just have some questions. Okay, last two. For people who love this book, what else would you recommend to them that's maybe in conversation with your work? I, uh, so, I, I've got like a long, <laughs> a long list. I've tried to whittle it down. Yeah, um, give me two, two or three. I'll just put it out there and just put out some books. Be, 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 do your thing. Because <laughs> <laughs> I feel yeah. like there needs to be explanation. This is the stacks. Like people are going to have thoughts and I feel like you have to kind of explain. No, um, you don't have <laughs> But I think, um, you know, speaking a little bit about politics, I think The Other Westmore is a book where, mm. um, you know, you have... 
uh, as one of the books I was reading as I was writing this book because I wanted to kind of get a little bit of the flavor for, um, you know, the kind of narrative where you're telling, you know, you're telling a story about an individual and telling a broader story about, um, you know, about the, the context in which they live. So that was that was one that I that I read um, in, in going into this. Um, and then, believe it or not, I read Roots uh, while, while writing this book as well. Um, and, and, and I, I kind of just felt like, especially looking at the, you know, the historical sweep of that that book, as well as like telling the story over multiple generations and, and allowing the reader to follow a generational um, experience all the way up to the present tense. That's what we try to do in the, the title, the, the chapter titled Roots in chapter three of uh, His Name is George Floyd, where we go all the way back to um, George Floyd's family history, the history of the family that owned his ancestors, and you know, take the story all the way back to the 1700s and tell the successive generational story. Um, and so uh, I think you know anyone who kind of appreciated that kind of storytelling would, would also appreciate the way it was done in, in books like, like Roots. Great. Robert? Uh, Tolu bought me some time so I could <laughs> narrow it down to two. So I think... Um, I'll, I'll I'll do one old and one new school book. I think um, what after we had written this, I was on a panel with uh, Linda Villarosa, uh, who wrote Under the Skin, uh, mm. and I thought, in terms of sort of uh, inquiry, um, it was really interesting, and it married with a lot of thoughts about the book. You know, there was you know we go through a lot of health stuff um, in terms of thinking about the perception of the black male body, mm. uh, the the weathering effect and the weathering hypothesis on of racism. Uh, Under the Skin goes through a lot of that too. Um, and it's sort of like, does it from the perspective of sort of a journalist who feels like she's made some wrong choices in terms of thinking about these things, but also from the perspective of a Black woman. And I, I, I just thought sort of it's interesting, you know, we're both looking at a lot of the same research in the discussions of the text of what we were writing um, and how those things form the larger story. I think it's just a really interesting compare and contrast. The other book, uh, I joke tolu i think you probably read like more than 30 books over the course of writing i read like four um and one of the and i didn't read all of the four i <laughs> read parts of it because i just to sort of inform when things got stuck but the other one that i really hope i really hoped folks would think about was the great gatsby mm. and the reason i thought about that is that it's often seen as kind of like the perennial American tale of the American dream. We learn to like develop a love and appreciation for a character who's completely flawed and no one's ever second guessed whether or not The Great Gatsby was a fundamental American story. Right. What we tried to do with George Floyd was the same, <laughs> like, because yeah. we wanted people to understand him in that same aspect like he's Jay Gatsby he's Willie Loman he's no more he's no less American than any of those people in some ways he might be more American uh, and we hope that was the like fundamental thing that people took away from it I love it 
Okay. Last one. If you could have one person dead or alive, read this book, who would you want it to be? I, you know, we had really wanted, uh, President Bush II, George W. Bush, to be a part of the book. Because I feel in so many ways, you know, uh, W and that generation of Bushes, their thinking about race um, is so prototypical of the American thoughts about Mm. it that the difference between equity and equality, (laughs) you know, just sort of, well, if we treat everyone equal, anyone can do anything, you know? Mm. And I think in sort of reading some of what he had written after George Floyd had died, it felt like there was something in him that maybe recognized that there was a part of his time in office that he might've, contributed to some of the things that directly hindered George Floyd's life, him being the governor of Texas at the time. Right, right. But also I think he, you know, he probably, you know, the idea that he wanted to do good by Black people, you know, he wanted that to be a part of his legacy. And it fundamentally was not. And, you know, I would just love to hear what he thought, you know, about what was presented to him and sort of, I would love to have that conversation with him. Love that answer. Tolu? That's that a great answer. Got the juices flowing for me a little bit. Um, <laughs> so dead or you see alive. see how this works. <laughs> um, I, I, I actually would go with uh, George Floyd's great, great grandfather who is featured in, in the book, um, who uh, not to give too many spoilers, but was someone who was born enslaved and was able to, over the course of a, a a long time of working as a free man, uh, able to amass a great amount of wealth. And the book gets into exactly what happened to that wealth. But um, just because I think, you know, telling his story and giving a tribute to his industriousness and hard work and putting it in print is something that, um, you know, was was not ever able to be done while he was alive. Um, I think he would be the person I want to read the book in part because I think it, 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 it speaks to his ability to overcome his circumstances and it's a tribute to who he was as a person and a tribute to the America that stripped him of his, of his chances. But um, I think, you know, knowing that he died in poverty after working so hard, um, having this, this, this tribute to his life, even if it's in in just a a few pages, I think I'd, I'd love for him to read that because, you know, he was someone who was denied the opportunity to even read because he was enslaved and taken advantage of because he couldn't read. And so I would I would love for him to to, to get this tribute and, and, and be able to read it and, and be able to to see his name in, in print in this way, as opposed to on newspaper pages that said, you know, you're 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 having your land uh, sold away from you at auction because you didn't pay your taxes. Right. Um, or putting his name into these, you know, business dealings that allowed for people, for white people to take his land away. So um, in, that's who I would love to, to read this book and, and to, to take away, um, you know, an understanding that he is recognized in American history, that his story isn't just one of these stories that no one ever can can, can look at and, 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 you know, just look at his, his death certificate or look the, at the fact that he died poor and, and not know that he lived as a wealthy man, that he was a hardworking man, that he was someone who had a legacy 
um, and whose legacy continues to ring true. So that's who I'd, I'd love to to read the book and, and, and engage with uh, some of the subject matter of what we were able to put together. Such good answers, you guys. I feel like those are A plus answers to that question. So thank you. Um, this was such a treat getting to talk to you both. Uh, you all are National Book Award finalists. We're recording this two days before the awards, so I don't know what happens, but I'm rooting for you guys. And no matter what happens, I hope everyone at home reads the book. I will also just quickly plug the audiobook. It's Dion Graham, right? I yes. listened to some of the audiobook. He does such a great job. I love him. He oh, he did the tremendous. book on Biggie by Justin Tinsley that I also listened to and loved. Um, he does a fantastic job with your work. So if you're an audiobook person, you have my endorsement on the book. If you are a eyeball reader, you have my endorsement on the book. Thank you guys both so, so, so much for being here. Thank you Thanks so much. Thanks so much. And thank you, you know, thank you for your support. We, I mean... We really, really appreciated it. And, you know, we appreciate that you gave voice to folks who are a little bit nervous or skeptical, and rightfully so, about what we were trying to do and accomplish. So we really thank you for that. Of yes. course. And yes. everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to Robert and Tolu for joining us. Remember, the Stacks Book Club pick for December is True Biz by Sarah Novich, which we will be discussing on Wednesday, December 28th with our guest, Greta Johnson. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the stacks to join the Stacks Pack. Make sure you're subscribed to the Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts or Spotify, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from the Stacks, follow us on social media at the Stacks Pod on Instagram and at the Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright, and our theme music is from Tagira Jith. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. Mm-hmm.